His name is Philip Brickman. He was a young and budding psychologist at Northwestern University. He began to make it his life's work and study to figure out what makes people happy. He had a colleague that said of him that he just wanted to make the world a more humane place. He eventually becomes the director of the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan, which allowed him to build upon 15 years of research with a colleague. He comes to coin a phrase that is uh, unique to humanity. He calls it the hedonic treadmill, where people start to get on this, this feedback loop where they feel like they've got to go and seek out more and more pleasure over time. And, and that just sort of becomes natural to us, this treadmill, this hedonic treadmill. And yet, on the basis of their research on that treadmill, they, they came to this realization. He said this, there may be no way to permanently increase the total of one's pleasure except by getting off the hedonic treadmill entirely. Paradox, right? The only way to maybe find your happiness is not to seek it or not to think that it's all on you in order to find it. And that's a remarkable sort of observation. And it's actually something that you've heard from others like C.S. Lewis. In, in one of the very last articles that he ever wrote, that was ever published shortly before his death in 1963, he wrote an article entitled, We Don't Have a Right to Be Happy. And in that article, he wrote this, I believe that we depend for a great deal of our happiness or misery on circumstances outside all human control. A right to happiness doesn't, for me, make much more sense than a right to be six feet tall or to have a millionaire for your father or to get good weather whenever you want to have a picnic. Happiness, though a remarkable thing, a desirable thing, because it depends on so many things outside of our control, why do we bother so much trying to find it? Well, Philip Brickman knew that, C.S. Lewis knew that, and whereas Philip Brickman had given his life's work and dissertation to it, in 1982, at the age of 38, he took his own life. And as one a uh, person wrote it in the New York Times recently who did a biopic on him. He said this, he was an expert in happiness, but he could not escape his own pain. And there's an awful paradox again. Friends, I know that you're hearing, if you haven't already said to countless people right now, Happy New Year. It's what we do. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's absolutely understandable and desirable to wish one another a Happy New Year. And it seems like a lot of our happiness is tied up with something that is new because how many things did we seek for one another at Christmas but things that were new? So it's so ingrained in us. And yet what we hear from the likes of Brickman and the likes of Lewis is that perhaps we need to rethink our categories and our search. This morning we're beginning a new series. And we're asking a question as we begin it. If wanting what is good is a desirable thing, how do we keep the search for happiness from being an obsession, a focus that actually never reaches what it seeks? Our argument for these next several weeks together is that rather than seeking our happiness, we seek what Jesus is meant to do for us. And he says in Revelation 21, I have come to make all things new. What does he mean by new? What does he mean that he's making it new? In part, it means this. He's come to make things that will last. And this morning, we're going to begin that series by looking at the one thing that he's made new, namely, a new hope. We're going to listen to a passage in which Jesus has come to introduce 
A New Hope, because on the first sermon of 2021, we're going to listen to what was Jesus's first sermon according to the Gospel of Luke. And in that passage, because we're talking about paradoxes, we're going to consider three paradoxes, each which lead us toward things that he's making new, things that are good, but things that aren't necessarily a search for happiness in themselves. So let's listen to Luke chapter 4. We'll start in verse 16. Our central text comes from Luke 4, verses 16 through 30. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of God. So every town has its native sons. If you look to the south at Flat Rock, you find Carl Sandburg's home and his life there. If you look to the north, though, we're perhaps familiar with one of the native sons of Asheville being Thomas Wolfe. One of the novels that he wrote, I've never read it, I've just read summaries of it, is a novel entitled You Can't Go Home Again. And it's all about an author himself, the author writing about an author, and that author writes a story that has a lot of resemblances to his hometown. In fact, it's patterned after its hometown, and it's patterned after Asheville was back when Thomas Wolfe wrote it. And the author um, publishes his book, and the book receives national acclaim, but the way in which that author described his hometown, well, not too flattering for the residents therein. And so when the author finally comes home to be celebrated, he finds that there's not exactly a celebration because he hasn't exactly said some kind things to say about his home turf. What we're about to hear in this moment or what you've just heard in this passage read is Jesus is the native son. He was born in Bethlehem, but he's born and reared in Nazareth. He's come to live there and now he's kind of gained a reputation in the hinterlands and faraway places, and mostly that reputation is uh, is a good one. But when he comes back here, he's going to discover you can't go home again. But at least not at first. 
At first, he's there to explain something. And I think it's the first thing that we're supposed to learn here is, is that the first lesson for this new year, uh, a paradoxical lesson in itself, is that Jesus has come to share with us that in his submission is out to bring to us freedom. Now, that's pretty big. That's way out there. What do I mean? Look, he's come home. He's showing up at the synagogue like he usually does. The synagogue was the place where you would hear uh, scripture read, you would hear it expounded, and then discussed. That was what the synagogue was. Well, Jesus on that day is the appointed guest preacher. He comes to read. He stands. He takes a scroll. He unrolls it. He pulls it open to what is in our Bible, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is one of those several passages in the whole book of Isaiah. It might sound familiar. We covered these passages over a year ago. It's the passages that refer to a servant. They are servant songs. They are songs that speak of a servant who would come and who would act with unique authority and responsibility. And Jesus reads that passage. Now, if you're back in Isaiah's time and you hear that servant song, that song was written when... Israel was in exile. It was a song in which they would be hearing that this one would have come to do something for them that they had looked forward to, that they would hope for, and, and his submission was to a task. And if you're that servant song in that earlier day and when it was written, then your task was to a particular moment, a particular need. And in that day, as you heard the passage read from Isaiah 61, if you're in exile, you would be suffering from the destitution of being taken out of your homeland. You would be blind to all manner of hope in a season of exile. You would know what it meant to be a captive because that's what it meant to be in exile. You weren't free to go home until you were authorized to go home. So in that day, Isaiah 61's day, all of it would have made sense. How would it have resonated if you're there at Jesus's moment, if you're the fellows listening around the circle there in the synagogue? Well, in some ways it would have been the same. You've got a people that are occupied by a foreign power. They're in their own homeland, but they're not really home. Rome has occupied it for over 100 years. Israel is under the thumb of Rome. And therefore, these are a people who know also what it means to be captive in a way and to long for a good news to come to them, uh, a poverty of spirit they may possess, or any number of trials that they face as a consequence of being occupied. And in that moment, Jesus is out to say, I've got something for you here. He reads that scroll, he sits down, and then he gives perhaps the shortest sermon ever. Wouldn't you love it if I adopted the same idea? He said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they marvel. They marvel at what he's claiming. And at first you think they're saying to themselves, awesome. It's time. God made a promise. We've been faithful. We deserve it. Good. And now, before we, we really kind of press into the response of those who are listening to Jesus, we have to back up here and ask ourselves this question. How does what Jesus said then, how does that speak to us? What is its significance to us? And you won't be shocked to hear that there's a variety of perspectives on that. There are those who read this passage where he quotes Isaiah 61, prepare the way of the Lord, make his way straight, and that he has come to um, bear up good news, to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, a recovering sight to the blind. There are those who will read that passage and say, clearly what Jesus is out to do is a matter of social reform. 
He's out to bring sight to the blind. He's out to bring captives free. He's out to preach good news to the poor. That sounds very much like a social effort. And indeed, Jesus manifests that interest. He does heal people who are blind. He does um, advocate for the poor. He, he, he speaks to a rich young ruler, asking him to consider that he might sell all his wares and follow him and, and give his means to the poor. Now, he does visit John the Baptist, who's in prison, and John the Baptist asks him the same question that we might all ask Jesus. Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Or is there somebody else we should wait for? And Jesus rattles off almost the same things to John as he rattles off in Isaiah 61 here. And yet Jesus doesn't see John the Baptist freed. So in that moment, Jesus clearly embodies a concern for social reform, a concern with social implications. That's what he does. And it's a reasonable it's a reasonable deduction from what you hear there as to the task that he's been appointed to, the task to which he's submitted. And yet, if you listen to that passage in the full sweep of Jesus' ministry, what is his focus? What do we find him doing most often? What is, that, what is that sort of central note that he keeps hitting throughout the entirety of his ministry? It is in part to help people see what they have become blind to. It is to help people become freed from captivity to their own desires. Look, that rich young ruler I just mentioned, that, that moment for Jesus between him and that rich young ruler is as much about that ruler's idolatry as it is anything about charity. And when we think also about just what Jesus does with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus who had defrauded any number of people as a tax collector for his own gain, his defrauding people was actually downstream of something greater, downstream of this greater idolatry to seek his own good. And when Jesus comes to transform him, to illumine him to his own blindness, to expose to him the degree to which he is captive to his own desires, then there's transformation, an inner transformation. And in how many different occasions then do we see Jesus speaking to invalids or to adulteresses or to prostitutes, he, he declares to him the same declaration. He says, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. The, the sins that we might approximate with a debt that the, the New Testament refers to, it associates it with, you're forgiven of that debt. So Jesus' ministry, it, it finds its focus in this sort of inner awareness, this illumination that is in need, this, this promise that I have come to show to you that you are more blind than you know and more poor than you might like to admit. It's an inner transformation. And yet, what we want to conclude from that is this. His concern for the social sphere, as true as it is, rests squarely on his concern for the spiritual sphere. In fact, it's that inner illumination, that inner freedom from captivity that then frees people to be available with those social implications. One of our elders recently reminded me of a chapter from Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis's most famous book, Mere Christianity. It's the, it's the chapter entitled Social Morality. And in that chapter, Lewis explains that some people look at the church as if it has come to entirely uh, transform all things, that it is to, out to both articulate and to enact both political and a social policy. And C.S. Lewis gently, kindly um, um, 
respectfully pushes back against that expectation that the church's primary responsibility is not to formulate, articulate, and enact social policy. It is not to create a political will. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have an interest in social policy or it doesn't have an interest in political philosophy, but its primary job is something else. But where Lewis finishes that chapter is to remind everyone that when Christ comes inside of a person and begins to redeem him from the inside and begins to transform him, then that transformation has all sorts of social implications. It begins to change the way in which one thinks one is to react unto the world and to be responsible for the world in which he finds himself, even to advocate in certain ways. And so it's sort of a long quote, but when you hear C.S. Lewis put it, you understand why he had to say it. He said this, some people nowadays say that charity ought to be unnecessary and that instead of giving to the poor, we ought to be producing a society in which there were no poor to give to. They may be quite right in saying that we ought to produce that kind of society. But if anyone thinks that as a consequence, you can stop giving in the meantime, then he has parted company with all Christian morality. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Okay. Counterintuitive, countercultural, counter all sorts of impulses that we live by. And unless you are motivated by that paragraph towards guilt to change your ways. The only thing that will lead you to be freed to do the very kind of life that C.S. Lewis outlines there is because you've been freed from all sorts of other desires. Desires that you've been held captive to. Desires that have been ingrained in me and in you. And so the, the first mark of this new year upon which we base our new hope is this paradox that in Jesus' submission to this task, that's our freedom. Freedom for our own spiritual blindness, freedom from our own inner enslavement to our desire, and then freedom for being available for a radical kind of generosity and expenditure to a whole world. That's, that's the first paradox that leads us to our good. And in that is our good. But that's not the only thing we learn. See, they hear what he has to say, and at first they marvel. But pretty soon, they begin to raise some questions. They, they say, wait a minute, this is, this is Joseph's son, i.e., uh, who's this guy again? Who, who does he think he is? And Jesus begins to read the room, and he realizes that what they're saying is, you talk a good game, but, you know, show us your magic. We, we've heard that you can do magic. And that's why Jesus raises this whole little proverb of a physician, heal thyself. In other words, uh, we've heard you do amazing stuff elsewhere. Well, why don't you kind of put your, um, what the, you know, the proof is in the pudding here, right? Let me see what you can do. And, and then what Jesus is out to do there is he's, he's more than just challenging their skepticism. He's coming after their presumption. See, these are folks who, obviously, they're here on the Sabbath, they're here to hear what God has said. They're here to hear it explained and expounded. And, and they think of themselves as those who are dutiful and righteous and deserving of whatever servant 
of the Lord would come to rescue Israel from its day. And in that frame of mind, Jesus is pushing back a little bit. Jesus is pushing back against their presumption. And that's why he rattles off two familiar but somewhat obscure historical moments. First one, from the time of Elijah when he's the prophet, there's a famine that's come over all of Israel. And what does Elijah do? Well, I know what Israel hoped Elijah would do. Israel hoped that Elijah would come and, you know, call down help to uh, provide rain and sustenance for Israel. But instead, what does he do? He, he helps some religious outsider. He helps this widowed woman from Sidon. She's a Gentile. No one knows her. No one cares about her. And God chooses to help her through Elijah. And then another instance, that's exhibit A. Exhibit B, there's a Syrian general. His name is Naaman. He's got leprosy. Well, it turns out there's all sorts of lepers in Israel before. We've talked about Jesus's encounter with leprosy most recently and a couple weeks ago. But here again, here's a, a Syrian general. He comes and who gets healed? It's not the Israelite lepers. It's the Syrian. And, and, a, and a Syrian general who, who was prepared to kind of go pay for it, thinking that he was worth being healed. And instead, the only reason he got healed was that he had to go humble himself. In that moment, Jesus is bringing up those two historical reasons for a point. Those who had no standing before God. Those who, from a Jewish perspective, had no place at God's table. It is to them that God shows mercy. The ones who everybody thought would be excluded are those who are being included in his kindness. Those who are being given his mercy. And it's those who assumed, who presumed upon God's grace. They're the ones who are left out in the cold. Those are the ones who are being passed over. They're the ones being excluded. And Jesus is saying by way of a second paradox, where we find our goodness is in this, that with one exclusion comes another inclusion. That in that moment, he is pushing back against their presumption. He's out to tell them, you think you deserve everything that's come to you, but what if that's not the case? What if, in fact, you are being set aside? See, the Jews then, in that moment, they're, they're like us all. They're, they're especially like us all in, in Western civilization in which we've put a great deal of pride and achievement. We, we kind of come up with the equation. If you do right, you get right. If you do good, you'll get your reward. And in that sense, it's kind of a quid pro quo thing in that anything that comes by your way will be by your own doing. And surely these who are in that synagogue that day, they believe that what they would get is what they deserve. But what Jesus is out to say by way of those historical examples is that those who receive mercy bring only one thing to the table, a recognition of their need. If you think you can convince him to give to you what you want from him, you will be wasting your breath. But if you will see that what is excluded is this belief that you would deserve anything from him, it's only then that you might discover that you would be included in him. And if you read Romans 9 through 11, you hear the Apostle Paul longing for his Jewish brethren to see Jesus as he sees Jesus, but he also sees a, other, a greater plan beneath it that those who are choosing to exclude themselves from this sort of revelation, 
They're the ones that are going to be excluded from his grace. And those who are Gentiles, who were thought outside the covenant, they're the ones being included. That's the paradox, friends. Our goodness is, though there is one exclusion at work here, those who would be excluded are those who are being included. And that is his mercy to us. Now, I might say this. To those who first heard this, especially to the Jews who first heard Jesus give his sermon, there would be a certain mentality in them that they would want to exclude those who they thought were unworthy of the kindness of God. And to our, from our point of view, that doesn't sound like something we would do. We're, we're not the kind of people that maybe would want to exclude anybody. And yet I would say this, yours and my greater temptation is not to exclude people from his kindness, but to conceal that kindness from them. In a world that is full of all sorts of options for how one might order their lives and, and give their greatest heart to and, and commit themselves in some form of worship or allegiance, we might feel awfully on our heels and maybe feel like that this might be true for us, but true for no one else. But, but what Jesus is out to say to us is if it's not true for everybody, it's not true for anybody. And yet you and I in our day are perhaps more prone not to exclude other people from it, but to conceal what we have. But it is our being included that is meant to prompt in us the desire not to conceal, but to reveal. And that, that kind of brings me to my last thing that I think is involved here in this moment. Because, look, what we've said so far sounds too daunting. And any, you and I are not going to have the compulsion to believe that our inner transformation is going to lead to have vast social implications. And, and you and I are not going to be compelled uh, to make very available uh, to others, whereas we might otherwise feel prone to conceal what we've been told. So in that sense, we have to consider one other truth he's out to tell us that is one mother paradox. See, whenever we wrap up a worship service around here, usually people will come up and they'll maybe ask questions or raise implications or, or give commentary. But when Jesus finishes his sermon, they want to throw him off a cliff. And, and somehow he eludes them, but, but before he does, he's clearly set them off. He, he has set them off with, with a certain claim about his authority. He has set them off by rebuking them for their inherent kind of suspicion. They, he has set them off for reminding them that any good that they comes to them from God is a function of his grace and not because they're deserving of it. And that, that sets them off in all sorts of ways. And, and therefore, in that moment, they, they have no place for him, and, and they reject him. And, and that by implication, brothers and sisters, is this. The third paradox that is meant to be the source of our greatest good and is meant to give us a new hope for this whole year and any year is that it's by his rejection that we find our acceptance. That what Jesus experiences in miniature there at the very front end of his ministry, he will experience to the fullest degree at the end of his earthly ministry. He will be rejected entirely. He will not just be run out of town and, and put on the precipice of a cliff. He'll be nailed to a cross. And it is by that rejection that we come to find an acceptance that is everlasting. And when we see it as such, when we recognize that he is the one who made himself poor 
in order to provide for us a spiritual sort of richness that allows us to be then very rich toward God and rich toward others. When we, when we see that he has impoverished himself for our good, when we see that he has allowed himself to be oppressed to the greatest degree to free us from the bonds of our own depravity and free us from the bonds of our own enslavements to desire and free us from our own sin and guilt, then we will see him as one thing. We will see him as beautiful. And when we see him as beautiful, we will have a kind of hope. A kind of hope that leads us to act in a way that C.S. Lewis spoke of one last time. He said this, keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. This is the paradox of our happiness. That if we don't seek that, we may actually find it because instead we've sought him and with him comes all that else thrown in. Brothers and sisters, I, I would wish that I could, with all integrity, wish you a happy new year. And I will, and it's fine. And there's no harm, no foul in saying that to one another. But I can't promise you a happy one. But I have good reason to say, and good legs on which to stand, to wish you a hopeful new year. Because in him, on the basis of the submission that he brings, and the inclusion that he offers, and the rejection that means our acceptance, it's the basis of our hope. And it is a hope we walk in. And so I wish you, on this first Sunday of a new year, I wish you a hopeful new year. Amen.